All right, we'll turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 4, and I'll read uh, the first eight verses. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Early on in the Lord Jesus' ministry, um, he sent out his 12 disciples throughout Galilee. He sent them two by two to preach the gospel, to minister, and to heal. And uh, in the brief instructions that he gave to them before they go, he said to them a short phrase. He said, freely you have received, freely give. And that's Matthew 10, uh, 8. Freely you have received, freely give. And on the one hand, that was uh, just a brief instruction for the trip as to how they were to be supported. They weren't to charge for anything uh, that they did on their reason. And the, the reason why was given to God didn't charge you freely. You've uh, uh, received uh, freely uh, give. So on the one hand, it was instructions for their trip, but it was more than that. It's what's recorded in scripture for us. It actually encapsulates the whole Christian life. Freely you've been given, freely received. Freely is how God gives to you. It's how he forgives you of your sin. It's how he cleanses you of your sin. He does it freely without charge. He does it with all his heart. He does it joyfully. He does it without holding anything back uh, from you. And it's only by faith in him giving in that way that enables you to give in the same way freely. You don't have that in yourself. You can only do it by faith in his uh, giving and uh, so that you can give with all your heart joyfully without holding back in the same way. And it turns out that's the only kind of obedience that pleases him. Obedience done in faith. In his uh, giving, that's why scripture says, whatever is not from faith is um, sin. So uh, freely you've received, freely give. Oh, that's a great statement of scripture. And it, it, it's, it works almost as an outline for a number of Paul's letters, um, including this one, uh, First uh, Thessalonians. And so um, the first half, basically, of this letter is about what God has given to freely to the Thessalonian uh, believers. And then after reassuring them of God's love, he says to them in chapter four, therefore, for the rest, and he tells them what they're to give to God, what they're to give freely uh, uh, to God, standing in the assurance of what he has given to them. And so it's kind of a turning point in the book in chapter four. So, so what does God want you to freely give to him? What obedience pleases God when it's done in faith. And what Paul um, traces out for the Thessalonians in this letter for the next two chapters is three 
interrelated areas of Christian obedience. And it is sexual purity, which is going to take us to verse 8, our uh, passage, then love. has several verses on that. And then the third area is watchfulness. Watchfulness for Christ's return. That's another area of obedience. And actually, Paul has much to say about that. It's going to take him through uh, chapter 4 and also chapter uh, 5. So three areas of uh, of obedience to the Lord that we're to give to the Lord as we stand in faith of what he is doing uh, for us. Sexual purity. And in some ways, uh, holy living starts right there. A selfish soul that is turned in on itself is going to manifest itself probably in, in impurity, sexual impurity in some way. And so in some ways, holy living starts right there. And then love is what he talks about uh, next. And love takes you away from yourself and being uh, bound up in, in yourself uh, to others, towards others, being oriented towards others as God himself is. God is love. Um, and uh, if purity is in some ways the start of Christian obedience, then love is the goal. Love is the apex. Love is the keynote uh, and the epitome of Christian obedience as it is of God himself. God is uh, love. So sexual purity, love, and then watchfulness, watchfulness. And uh, this Christian duty puts the knife's edge and the sense of urgency on all the other uh, elements of uh, Christian duty, as well as boldness that we're right on the cusp of a great victory of the return of uh, our king. And so watchfulness is needed and is proper to uh, obedience to uh, the Lord in the time before his return so that you don't put off till tomorrow in all the areas of Christian obedience, which you should be doing uh, today. So what, uh, those are the three. That's where we're headed in this study of uh, uh, First Thessalonians. But uh, this morning, we're going to focus in on everything that's said in this passage about sexual purity. And verse three is kind of a heading for everything that he says about it. He says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God your uh, sanctification. We've emphasized here at Trinity and rightly over the years because the emphasis of scripture, sovereign grace. And what we mean by that is we don't trace salvation to the goodness of our wills, some something good somewhere in there, uh, but we trace our salvation to the goodness of his will. He's the one who chooses. His the will is the one uh, that uh, stands. And uh, we certainly choose Christ, in order to be saved, we must choose Christ, which comes from our will. We, we must use our will uh, to do that. And we urge people to choose Christ in response to the gospel. But when you read about that choice in scripture, you find that it's not a heroic act of the will to be saved. It's really behind the scenes, God's will triumphing over yours. And so that's taught in scripture. Uh, the, the Lord takes the trouble to teach that to us. For example, John chapter 1 Verse 12, but as many as received him to them, give he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so it's his will uh, that really counts for uh, our salvation. And, and we learn that his will is better than ours, which is another way of saying, I'm glad that he is God in everything that that means and that I am not God. And uh, we learn that God has good in store for us according to his will beyond our even imagination. And uh, so the same will 
that desires your good in salvation, that desires to save you and uh, to make you a trophy of his grace, also desires your holiness. And that's what it says here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And uh, that holiness, it's mentioned here not just as an end of what God desires for you, but it's the process. It's, and that's how it's, it's mentioned here, the process of holiness, or, the, or it's put as a process, the process of sanctification. And so that's what God wills for you. The whole untidy process with, with its ups and, ups and downs of holiness uh, for you is God's desire for you. God desires holiness for you. That is uh, his will. And so uh, this morning what I'd like to look at is three aspects of the holiness that God desires for you. And we'll find that in verse 3 to 6. And then three reasons for the holiness that God desires for you. So three aspects of the holiness that God desires for you. And then three reasons for the holiness that God desires for you. And the first aspect of the holiness that God desires for you is, is also in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, and here it is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, the word that's given here for, it's translated sexual immorality, is it's one word in Greek, and uh, let me give you my quick definition of it. It's, it's uh, sex outside of marriage, sexuality outside of marriage, and there's a Greek word for it. They use that word. Uh, for it, it was also the word uh, used for a prostitute, um, as well as the word porneia. You can hear uh, what it means. It's for sexuality outside of marriage. Let me give you a fuller definition of it that I ran across in my reading. I thought maybe this was a better, or at least fuller one. It's any and every form of sexual practice that lies outside the circle of God's revealed will, namely adultery, premarital and extramarital intercourse, homosexuality, and other perversions. And so this is God's will for you. He wills holiness. He wills sanctification. That is, and here's the first aspect of it, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we find here, uh, abstain, it means staying completely away, completely away from uh, sexual uh, immorality. Uh, your body, to stay away from it, but uh, uh, the, the clear testimony of scripture is not just your body, but also your eyes and also your mind, also your mind to stay away from uh, sexual immorality. Uh, the eyes mentioned, and let me show you just a couple of passages quickly. Uh, Job 31, verse 1, where Job is a righteous man. He's the most righteous man on the earth of his time. And he, he says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He's a married man. He's not talking about his wife here. Um, he's talking about a, a, a virgin, so a woman who's not his wife. And he says, I've made a, a covenant with my eyes that I not uh, uh, gaze at her uh, with, with my eyes. Um, he uses the term covenant, and it's an important word in uh, Scripture. He uses it here just for this kind of thing that he's saying about his eyes. Um, a covenant in Scripture, sometimes it's portrayed as God's way of doing things that uh, he reveals uh, on earth. Actually, I think a better idea of a covenant is uh, something that takes place always in an environment of mistrust and suspicion, like two nations that might go to war with each other. And so they, they don't trust each other. And so they not only tell each other and promise to do something, but they have to make a covenant for it. And God, it's rather something that God stoops down to us who are, uh, for no reason, 
uh, suspicious and mistrustful of him were weak in faith. And he stoops down and even makes a covenant with us as we're going to observe at the Lord's Supper for us weak in faith. Lord, making a covenant. Christ's body is for you, and I'm making a covenant uh, for that uh, way. And so uh, I think it's a different way in which uh, covenant should be understood uh, in Scripture. But that's what Job's saying about his eyes. In other words, he's saying, I don't really trust my eyes. I don't really trust my eyes. Bro. I'm suspicious of my eyes. I'm afraid they're going to do something that I don't want them uh, to do. And so I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to take time and forethought, and I make a covenant with my eyes that they not... Uh, uh, do something that I don't want them uh, to do. And so he talks about uh, that. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus uh, speaks of the same thing. Matthew 5, uh, 27. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. That's something you do with your body. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he talks about the eyes looking. Um, and uh, any lustful looking, certainly pornography, which is rampant in our uh, and available in our all around us uh, is included in that and then also he says and in the heart as well he talks about adultery in the heart and it's done in the thoughts and so all of those are to abstain from uh, sexual uh, immorality which is the first aspect of uh, the holiness that god desires uh, for uh, you uh, some have thought, well, if Paul is uh, speaking to the Thessalonians about this, maybe it's a sign that they're uh, participating. Some of them, even the, the Christians in the church, are participating in sexual immorality. I, I think that's prob- probably not the case. I think he's saying this, I think, by way of prevention, mostly, and not uh, rebuke. And the reason I say that is not just because the Thessalonians had already proved to be a model church to other churches and an example to them of what a church ought to be, but when there is instances of sexual immorality going on in a church like in Corinth, Paul calls it out. He calls it out by name. I'm aware of this that's happening and it needs to be dealt with, he talks about. And so he he, uh, calls it out um, directly. But I think rather he's warning them against this because he knows, of course, the human heart. um, And also because it was a, a big temptation in their culture where sexual sin was not only tolerated, but it wasn't even really regarded as sin at all and was celebrated in that uh, culture. More about that uh, a little bit later, but it's not really difficult to imagine because that's the kind of culture we live in. You know, you don't have to learn a ton about uh, uh, biblical backgrounds. Uh, we live in the exact same uh, kind of culture uh, today. And so a warning is needed, and that's what he's given. And it's a, it's a firm warning to abstain from sexual immorality. And certainly useful for the Thessalonians They'd only been a Christian for a short time, and uh, many of them were called out of paganism. They turned from serving idols to serving the living and true uh, God, and it was a uh, transition that they had made, uh, many of them fully participating in everything that uh, went with the service of idols, including sexual sin. They've been called out of that, and he, he knows the temptation, and so he warns them against that as well. So three aspects of holiness that God desires for you, and the first is just plainly spoken, and it's spoken in the negative, abstain from sexual immorality. The second aspect of it is put more in the positive, put more in the positive. Uh, it's the other side of the coin uh, of the same thing, but it's put in a positive way, and that's in verse 4 and 5. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, Paul says... Uh, this is what God desires for you, 
that each of you know that you learn, so it takes some learning, how to possess his own vessel. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? And different uh, different uh, tr- commentators and even translators have uh, taken a different view of what uh, that means. He mentions a vessel, which is figurative, but figurative of what? Figurative of what? And the word vessel that he uses here, everyone is to know how to possess his own vessel. It's a really flexible word. Uh, can refer to, in scripture, goods, merchandise, a jar, a vessel, tool, an article, an object, uh, an instrument. Um, it's even used of the big sheet that came down in Peter's dream uh, with all the animals in it. And uh, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And it came down in a sheet, and it's called a vessel that it came down. So it's a flexible word. Uh, it can refer to a, a container, I think we would say, or, or just a thing, just anything. Um, what is what is it figurative of, and what does it mean? And uh, one way of understanding it, a way that it's been understood, is uh, of a wife. Of a wife, and the idea here would be each one is to know how to possess a wife, in other words, how to gain possession of a wife, how to acquire a wife, uh, how to get a wife. And that comes from um, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 7, I think is what is in people's minds when they're thinking of this, which uh, says that a husband is to dwell in an understanding way with his wife, remembering that she's the weaker vessel, weaker vessel. So, okay, well, here it's a vessel as well. It must be a wife um, as well. Um in that, in First Peter 3, both the husband and the wife are vessels. The wife is the weaker uh, vessel. Uh, I think a better way to understand it is actually as a picture of uh, the body. It's a picture of the body. And so it's not to acquire a body. That wouldn't really mean much. Uh, but to know how to possess and control the body. And a vessel is a, is a good and an apt description of uh, the body and actually a familiar um, description of uh, the body, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Apostle Paul is called a chosen vessel. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. He's a chosen vessel of mine. Uh, and perhaps even more clear is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, verse 5, where David comes with the men who are uh, with them to the priest, to the tabernacle, and he says um, these men, a lot of them are kind of rogues that are uh, with him. He says they've been kept from women and the vessels of the young men are holy. In other words, their bodies um, are ceremonially clean. He calls them vessels uh, in that way. So it'd be a familiar uh, picture uh, in that uh, way. And so here's here's the thought, and it's stated in a, a positive way, is that each one must learn how to possess his own body in what way? In what way? In sanctification and in honor. Possess, learn to possess your body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, not, not in the passion of uh, lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that's how they possess their vessel, is uh, in uh, lustful passion. And they do it because they don't uh, know uh, God. And so this issue of sexuality and the human body, Paul knew, would set the Thessalonians apart from their culture. He says each is to learn how to possess his own body, his own vessel, in a way that's totally different from the people around you, the Gentiles, the people who uh, don't know God, because they possess their body in passion. That's that's the point of having a body, is to to, to use it for lustful passion. He says, I, I want you to po- learn to possess your vessel, not like them, but in sanctification 
and uh, in honor. And he knew that that would set them apart from the culture uh, around them. And uh, he knew this would make them weird. <laughs> and it's the same for us. And so people may learn your attitude towards these things or your practice towards these things before they even know that you're a Christian because they see the difference and they see uh, that it's uh, stark and hopefully that might be a way for them to find out uh, about your Lord uh, and not just that you practice something uh, different in that way. But Paul knew that it was a flashpoint. That's the way in which he uh, describes it as, as a, a real opposite. To learn to possess your uh, vessel in the opposite way of all the nations, the Gentiles that are around you. And the reason they do that is because they don't know God. They serve idols. They serve uh, gods that they uh, imagine. They don't know God, and they don't know what God cares about. They don't know what God cares about uh, in in this uh, realm, and uh, they behave like that uh, as well. Perhaps you uh, got an email, and uh, it was from uh, an update from Tim Huggins in Japan, who's a pastor in a real different uh, context uh, from us, and he had a little ceremony in, in, near the church where he's burning uh, an idol shelf, and that's a, a man who's making a uh, clean break with the past, the idea of there's no going back. So they had this kind of ornate wooden idol shelf, and they had a, a campfire uh, uh, for it, and uh, that's the way to break as well with the idolatry uh, of sexual sin as well, and it's, uh, that's associated with that as well. That's the way that the Lord described the kind of break uh, that we're to make uh, with that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, after talking about uh, adultery and even the deeper command that the Lord makes, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go uh, into uh, hell. And so what he's saying there figuratively is make a firm break. If you do something that is a temptation to you in this area, cut it off. Stop doing it. Uh, take drastic uh, action uh, in order uh, uh, to make a clean break uh, with this. And so uh, Paul says there should be a stark difference between those who serve idol idols and those who uh, know the Lord uh, in, uh, in, in this area, uh, because, uh, the difference is, uh, night and day. One in lustful passion, possessing his own body, the other in sanctification and honor. And so this is a, a flashpoint. This is a difference between the culture around us and, uh, what, uh, scripture teaches is an attitude towards the body. One in lustful passion and one in, um, uh, sanct holiness and, uh, honor. It might seem at first like our culture, which is, I think, a lot like the culture of uh, the Thessalonians. It might seem at first that our culture, according to its values, sets the body on a really high pedestal uh, to say, you know, the body really should get whatever it wants, whatever appetite it has, no matter how uh, ugly it is. It's important for you to satisfy that. And that goes with our culture's uh, High value on the virtue of self-expression. It's almost the only virtue that our culture uh, uh, holds to be uh, important, along with the only vice, which is dishonesty to your authentic uh, self, uh, as well as the only vice uh, that they know of. And so if your body gets in the way of your authentic self, like if your body says you're a man, but your authentic self is a woman, uh, then just change your body. 
change your body. And we're seeing that uh, uh, today, a huge surge in the whole uh, transgender movement or the homosexuality that, that um, is associated with that um, as well. Uh, it might seem at first that they're setting the body on a high pedestal, but if you think about it, what they're saying is the human body is not really you. The human body has nothing to do with your real personality. It's just the suitcase that holds your real personality. And so if it doesn't match your uh, personality, just change it. It's just an instrument to be used for pleasure, to be used uh, for lustful uh, passion. It's, it's actually a way of dishonoring the body. So it might appear to honor the body, but it actually dishonors uh, the body greatly by saying your body has nothing to do with your personality. If your body is male and your personality is female, then change your body uh, around uh, in that way. And guess where that all, that same kind of thinking also shows up in something much related to it, which is abortion, where the simple question for whether a life should be protected is, is it human and is it alive? And if it's human and if it's alive, it's a human life. And so the way you treat that uh, human life says more about you than the thing about what you're arguing about, whether it's a, whether it's really a human life or not. It's a very simple question. Is it human or is it, uh, and, and is it, uh, alive? But, uh, the answer that our culture gives to that question is, well, even if it's human and if it's alive, it doesn't really have a personality until some point later, some point in the pregnancy, some point after birth, some point in which parents say that they want this uh, human life. And so they, again, separate the human body from the human personality. The human body is worthless. In fact, you can throw it away as trash or you can kill it uh, because the personality is something uh, 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 separate from that. And uh, what scripture says about the body is the human body is you. And so you can say that about your body. Is it human? Your body? Yes. Is it alive? Yes. Well, then it, your body is your human life. And it's something not to be thrown away. It's not something to, as an instrument to be used for lustful passion, but it's to be used for holiness and for honor. Honor is what uh, the scripture says about that, including in the way it expresses itself in sexuality. And so the Bible says that that is uh, to be always a mutual, mutually dignifying expression of communion and love only to be done in what God also participates in in a special way uh, by sanctifying by marriage, which is something that God does, what God joins together. Uh, man uh, should not uh, bring uh, asunder. And so uh, that is to be done not as a throwaway, not in lustful passion, but in sanctification and uh, in honor uh, in that way in, uh, in marriage. And so uh, it's a culture of life that comes into contact with a culture of death as God comes into contact uh, with idols and Christians in contact with the culture around us. Um, it's seen maybe at its high, highest in Revelation, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And this talks about the time of uh, the tribulation on the earth. Uh, and it's a time when man is going to be rebellious against God with eyes wide open. Man is already that way, but man clothes that rebellion and a lot of other uh, different things. But here it's going to be impossible to disguise that man hates God and God is pouring out his wrath upon man on uh, the earth. And uh, even at this time when God is reducing the world to misery, uh, the people on the earth are going to be clinging to their way of life. 
which is actually the this culture of uh, death. And so uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, talks about all these um, plagues the Lord is unleashing on earth, making the earth a, a miserable place to live. And it says this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither hear nor uh, see nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality. There's that word that uh, it says to uh, uh, abstain from sexual immorality, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And so uh, man will be shaking his fist uh, at God and, and still clinging, still even in this uh, case, taking the time to sin uh, against God in uh, these ways, even at that, uh, even at that uh, moment. So this is uh, the way in which we're to possess, to learn, to possess our own uh, vessel, our own body, is the way that God cares about it, and uh, in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So uh, three aspects of the holiness God desires for you. The first kind of stated negatively, abstain from sexual immorality. Second stated positively, learn, learn how to possess your body in honor, especially in this matter of uh, sexuality. And then verse uh, six, and here's the third aspect of the holiness the Lord desires for you, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in uh, the matter. Uh, he says uh, that you're not to transgress. That's passing over a line that divides right uh, from wrong and defraud is to cheat your brother in the matter. The matter of what? Well, maybe Paul's being a little delicate uh, in talking about this, he just calls it the matter, but it's the matter of, of uh, sexuality. It's uh, the matter of the things that he's uh, uh, talking about uh, here. And what he points out here at the end is that uh, you, you cannot sin in this way without somehow hurting someone else, without defrauding your brother or your sister, I think he means uh, in this case. It's not, as it's sometimes uh, referred to, a victimless crime. A victimless crime. And uh, our culture has uh, arbitrarily attached itself to uh, a standard for sexual behavior. And that is, as long as two adults give their consent, it's right. It's fine. No matter what it is. As long as two adults give their consent, nobody's defrauded. Nothing, nothing is uh, wrong uh, in this. And uh, our culture finds is, is finding this actually to be a moving target. It's not really nailed down to there, uh, and it's uh, a moving target uh, uh, there. But that's not the standard uh, for God, and, and uh, God does not consider sins uh, of these nature to be a, a victimless crime, but they find one, he finds it to be one that, that always harms someone else. And so uh, he says, let no man uh, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Um, probably referring to a Christian brother, but the way we treat Christians is the way we're to treat others uh, as well, and especially how not to harm uh, them in this way. And so I don't, I don't think it excludes, of course, the wider circle of those who are defrauded against in this matter at, uh, when uh, any sexual sin is uh, done. So three aspects of the holiness God desires from you. Abstain from sexual immorality, very plainly said. Learn to control uh, your body um, in sanctification and honor, which is different from uh, the culture uh, around you. And don't wrong 
your brother. Don't transgress and defraud your brother in uh, this manner. Well, there's three reasons. There's three aspects of it. That's what it is. That's what he calls you to. There's three reasons for the holiness that God desires uh, for you. And the first reason is is closely related to the last thing that he said, the aspect of holiness. You're not to defraud someone else uh, in this. And it's a very serious reason to uh, consider. Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because, here's the reason, it's the first one given for all of this. The Lord is the avenger in all of these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. The Lord keeps track of these matters and is an avenger of the wrong uh, that uh, is done. How is he an avenger in this life? In the last judgment, an avenger even bearing it in the cross of Christ, I think. Uh, well, it's his, it's his decision. It's his uh, decision. It's up to him. But justice in this area is his concern. So the Lord says, I care about this. I care about justice. I remember when something is done and uh, I will uh, avenge. Well, that's the first reason uh, given for for uh, the holiness that God desires is that he's an avenger in all these things. These are not um, things that he just winks at and overlooks. He keeps track of these things and is an avenger uh, in these. Uh, Paul says, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It's uh, interesting how often Paul says this to the Thessalonians as he, in this letter saying, well, I told you before. He spent only a brief time with them establishing this church, uh, but he was able to trace out the basics. And now he's coming back to some of them that need to be reinforced in this letter. But he was able to trace out the basics. And this is something that he's already traced out before. The Lord's concerned about these things. The Lord is an avenger in these things. We've solemnly warned you about this uh, already. A second reason why the Lord desires this for you, it's, it's the nature of your calling. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And I think we should take encouragement from this because the Lord's calling is not just a suggestion. It's a powerful calling. It's a calling that accomplishes what it calls for. It's an effectual uh, calling. And what he says here about this calling is it's not done uh, in an atmosphere of uncleanness. But it's a calling that's done in an atmosphere of holiness, in an atmosphere of uh, sanctification. And uh, actually, the atmosphere that the Lord calls us is the whole atmosphere of the triune God, which is an atmosphere of love between a father and a son. And the Holy Spirit himself shares in that, and he's a holy spirit. He's separate from sin. He's full of the life of God and everything uh, and the love, uh, the mutual giving uh, that that life is all about. And Paul says, uh, reminds uh, the Thessalonians here to behave in this manner, according to this uh, important issue, because this matches your calling. You weren't called in filthiness. You weren't called in uncleanness, but you were called in uh, holiness. And uh, that's what God has called you to. And then the final reason, uh, the third reason, and actually kind of uh, draws it to a conclusion with uh, a therefore, uh, the third reason for uh, God desiring holiness for you. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He says, if you set aside everything that we're saying about this uh, important matter and say, well, I'm, I'm just not, I'm going to tune that, I'm going to tune that part out. He says, you're not saying a man's opinion is of no account. You're saying that God's opinion is of no account. And so God says, if, if you set this aside, you're setting me aside. It's that important, he says. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but 
God. But I love the note that he ends on. I love the note that he ends on here in verse 8. I think he does it on purpose. He rejects this as not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He ends with God who is uh, giving his Holy Spirit. And so if you're sinning in this area, you're not only sinning against God, you're setting him at naught. Uh, you're saying that he is of no account, but you're sinning against a gift that God is giving to you now. It's put in the present tense. He's giving this. You're setting God at naught who gives his Holy Spirit uh, to you. So you're not just repudiating God, but you're repudiating the gracious pr- provision that he's given to you. And, and what he's giving to you is himself, his Holy Spirit, his spirit, which has all the power that you need for standing against temptation, for cleansing in uh, this area power that's greater than the worst temptation, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, him, himself. And so uh, he who sets, rejects this is not just rejecting man, but the God who gives freely. He gives his Holy Spirit to you, to live in you, uh, as, as, as uh, God inhabited the temple in uh, Old Testament times, but it's with the power of holiness to reside in you. And uh, so I like the way one commentator uh, put it, the way to escape the avenger is to fly to the giver and accept his gift. And that's a great, a great way of understanding uh, our salvation. We're fleeing from God to God, freeing from God, the avenger, the wrath of God that we deserve to his son and what is given to us freely in uh, Christ. Well, let me, let me conclude this morning with this. And that is that we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And the battle is to stand for Christ, who is our returning king, to stand for him right here in this place and right here in this time. And so this is no time to be found on the sidelines and certainly not sidelined by this issue of sexual, uh, sexual uh, purity. So if you're unclean in any of these ways, the time to act is now. His grace is real. The gift of his Holy Spirit is is real. His power is real. And it's for you. Uh, The Lord Jesus spoke to people who were stained with sin in this area. He spoke to one woman who said, uh, he said to her, go call your husband And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, that's right. You have five husbands. You've had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. And then he said to her, I give you, I give you living water. And if you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. It's a gift. It's given uh, freely and it's given to uh, sinners. And so the time to stand uh, in the battle with the gift that the Lord gives of his holiness and power uh, that's needed for this area is now. Let me, uh, let me uh, conclude on that note in Romans chapter uh, 13. Do this knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you put him on by faith. You put him on by faith. 
put him on by hearing and believing that his promise is for you. And that's what we're doing here uh, at the Lord's table. Hearing and believing that the promise, my body is for you, my power is for you, my cleansing is for you. Believing it's true, believing it's uh, for you, and believing that it's a gift. And so uh, the gift is given of forgiving, forgiveness for sins, of uh, cleansing power that is yours in Christ, and it's yours by faith. So uh, Dylan shows the same uh, hymn that I wrote here at the bottom of my notes, but we come to Christ as we come to the Lord's table. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I, I cling. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for the power that we have in Christ. We pray that we might stand in his gift. Uh, We pray that we might stand in purity. And we pray that you'd empower us to uh, meet the challenge of our time, not um, thinking, uh, acting, uh, looking as the world uh, does all of these things, as the Gentiles do, but in holiness and in honor. We pray that you would teach us to conduct ourselves, to possess our vessels uh, in this way, and that we would stand in the power of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.